And if you've got your Bibles, if you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're in the middle of a series focusing on the end times. And so Pastor Cameron will be preaching on, in a little bit, on what's going to be happening on earth as revealed in the last days. And for a few moments, I just want to share one of the things that Christians will be experiencing in heaven at that time. Now, many people avoid prophecy because it is difficult to understand. But God has placed prophecy in the Bible for a reason. He wants us to think about what is to come. He doesn't want us to get blinded by only what's happening right in front of us. So one of the events that will happen in the future for Christians is the judgment seat of Christ. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Now, if we're honest, we do not like the term judgment. The word judge and judgment, we bristle up against it because we don't like people disagreeing with our choices or expressing their disapproval with what we say, do, or think. And this goes for even some of the silliest of preferences we have. We say, don't judge me for being an NC State fan, or don't judge me for being a UNC fan, or don't judge me for being a fan of Duke, even though their mascot is literally a devil, Andrew. So, I mean, I don't get it. But we say, don't judge me for my preferences. Don't judge me uh, for my taste in music. I have to tell Pastor Cameron not to judge me every year around this time because I get more excited than my wife about pumpkin spice season in the coffee shop. And I just have to defend my masculinity. I'm okay with that. Like, I just say, don't judge me. Now, those, we bring that up for trivial things, silly things that don't really matter. But what about more important things in life to be judged by? See, we may not like to be judged on what we do with our time, our talents, and our resources, but here's an important truth whether we like it or not. God reminds us all throughout his word that he is God and he has every right to judge us. He is the all-knowing, all-wise, perfect, just judge. And one day, each and every follower of Jesus will stand before his throne and experience what is known as this judgment seat. Romans 14, 10 10 through 12 speak through it where it says, For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, for it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. See, there's a judgment to come for everybody, and that's illustrated in our judgment house drama coming up. It's an incredible picture that shows us the importance of eternity and asks the question that every single person will answer, what did we do with Jesus? But that's not the judgment that this is referring to, because the judgment seat is for Christians. Every single follower of Jesus Christ For all of human history will stand before the throne of God and will give an answer to God for how they spent their life on earth. Did they live for his glory, his kingdom, or did they spend their lives selfishly? And 1 Corinthians 3, 13 through 15 shows us this, that the judgment seat is a time of reward for Christians, not punishment. We as Christians will be given rewards based on the quality of our works. So at this moment, God is going to look at our lives, how we spend our short few years on earth, 
And he's not only going to be able to point out the works we did, but he's going to be able to point out the motivation behind those works. Were they done to receive praise from other people? Or are works done in the name of Jesus for building up the church and spreading the message of the gospel? Now, we ask, what are these rewards? And we see five specific crowns mentioned in Scripture, and I won't spend a lot of time on them just to mention them. But we see the incorruptible or the victor's crown in 1 Corinthians 9.25. We see the crown of life or the martyr's crown in Revelation 2.10. The crown of glory or the elder pastor's crown in 1 Peter chapter 5. The crown of rejoicing, that's the witnessing, the soul winner's crown in 1 Thessalonians 2. And we see the crown of righteousness, those who love the appearing of Jesus in 2 Timothy 4.8. These are rewards for being faithful to Christ on earth with the right motivations. So what's the purpose of these rewards? What do we do with these crowns if we get them? Revelation 4, 10 and 11 says this, And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. See, we aren't going to be waltzing around heaven displaying our crowns for everyone to see and praise us. Not at all. We're not going to have a trophy case of our crowns in heaven to show off. Because these crowns are not for our glory, they are for God's glory. So when we come before the throne of God, we will take our rewards, our crowns, and we will cast them at his throne, declaring that, God, this was all for you. So where does that leave us? 1 John 2.28 encourages us to abide in Christ so that we won't be ashamed when he returns. Now that doesn't mean there's going to be two separate classes of people in heaven. We will all enjoy eternity living together if we've put our faith and trust in Jesus. But this is a serious thought. We could be ashamed as we stand before the Lord knowing that we could have better spent our time on earth for his glory. At the same time, it should encourage us with the reality of receiving rewards if we have served him faithfully here on earth and for the right reasons. So the bottom line is this. When we leave this life and step into eternity, all that will truly matter is how we lived for God's glory. Are you ready for the judgment seat of Christ? If we haven't been ready up to this point, it's not too late. And the gospel is our motivation to be good stewards of our time, our talents, and our treasures here on earth. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the truth that you've given to us in this word, the truth about your judgment seat that every follower of you will experience one day. And we ask that 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 would be our motivation, to use the time that you've given us for your glory, to wisely spend our time here on earth investing in your kingdom work, so that we will not be ashamed when we stand before you. Keep that thought at the front of our minds as we spend our days. And we thank you for this reality. We thank you for Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Matthew chapter 24 is our text this morning. We're going to begin reading in verse, three, verse 2, and we'll read down to a portion of this chapter. Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming, 
and of the end of the world. Jesus then proceeds to give what is sometimes referred to as the Olivet Discourse. It is a sermon that points to uh, the coming of Christ in the future, the end times. We often look at Daniel and we think of Revelation in regards to these things. But here is a chapter that is given to us by Jesus. The timing of this sermon is not by accident. This is during the last week of Jesus' ministry on this earth. And at the pinnacle of the rejection of the nation of Israel, the pinnacle of their rejection of Christ as the Messiah, Jesus does something unusual. He begins to speak about future events. In other words, when they have determined in their heart that he is not God, he does something that only God could have done, and that is tell what will come in the future. And he begins to give some instruction. He begins to give some understanding of this. We are going through these weeks. We're looking at what will take place in the end times, unveiling the future, seeing what God has, God's word has to say about it. There is much speculation. There's much pondering about these things. What we want to see is what does the scriptures say? God gives us plenty in his word that helps prepare us for these future events and what will transpire, what will take place. We are really sort of in a, this is sort of like a mini prophecy conference, I guess you could say over these weeks, as each of our pastors are opening and sharing things from the believer's side of future events. But then we're also looking at from the unbeliever's side, from the side of what is taking place in this world. On this world, there will be taking place seven years of what is described as, in various ways, the time of great tribulation, the time of trouble, the great tribulation. As we look at this this morning, I want you to see a few thoughts from this passage and what the Scripture says and describes for us, for our understanding But I want to remind you that like all Scripture, prophecy is given to reveal Jesus Christ to us. I mentioned um, in our Sunday school class this morning, if you turn, don't do this now, but if you turn to the book of Revelation, very often the title in a Bible, um, which is not an inspired part of it, it is the title given to the book. It'll say, the revelation of St. John, or the revelation of St. John the Divine, or John the Apostle. But when you look at what the scripture has to say, the very first line of that book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This book is not, in the future, is not for us to know certain details and try to identify, well, maybe this, this world leader is the Antichrist, or this person is this or that. It is to point our hearts and minds to Jesus Christ, and it is to reveal something to us about God. So I want to talk briefly this morning and quickly because there's a lot of things that are going to take place during those seven years about the reality of the tribulation and the reasons for the tribulation. But I want us to look this morning primarily at the revelation of the tribulation. What does it reveal to us about God? As we look at this passage, Jesus really sort of breaks things into three different segments. He begins in verse 5 to talk about the signs that will lead up to this, the early part of this seven-year time of trouble. He says in verse 5 or verse 4, Jesus answered when they asked this question and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. 
For a nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. This first portion he describes as the beginning of sorrows, and if you compare this to the first seals of Revelation chapter 6, you see these things that are poured out. And they're things that have always been around. They have been existent since the beginning of time. There are religious deceptions, he says in verse um, in verse 4 and 5. There are wars. There is because of that, there's famine and there's death. All of these things have been around martyrdom. There's religious persecution. There have been these things since the beginning of time. But at this time, they will be unleashed in such an unprecedented way that it will be extraordinary. It will be worldwide. It will be on a global scale that these will be taking place. One example of this is when he talks about the martyrdom of those who have trusted and heard the word that is preached during this time. He says in verse, in, in verse uh, 9, Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you. They've done that for, for centuries. And ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Martyrdom and persecution is not exclusive to this time, but it is one of the indications that this is taking place. And it is on a global, he said, all nations. There's never been a time around the world when the entire world and when all nations persecuted those of faith. And so these are the signs of the beginning of sorrows. But then in verse 9 and following, really down through verse 22, the remaining body of this sermon, Jesus describes what is called the Great Tribulation. He calls it this down further in the chapter, but it's interesting what is described throughout Scripture. This is not some time that's going to be of ease. This is not some time that's going to not be a time of God's judgment and God's wrath. For example, in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1, he calls it a time of trouble. Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 7, he calls it the time of Jacob's trouble and says it will be a great time of trouble. Listen to how Zephaniah describes it. He says, The great day of the Lord is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Please tell us how you really feel about it, Zephaniah. How is it really going to be? It is going to be a terrible, terrible time. And Jesus calls it here in this passage, the great tribulation in verse 21. What is this that's taking place? At some point following the rapture, it seems that the Antichrist will make a covenant with the people of Israel, a seven-year covenant as it's described in Daniel chapter 7, where there will be a week, one final week in the 70 weeks of God's dealing with Israel. There will be one final week of years that takes place. And he will make this covenant. He'll establish a peace treaty with Israel in fact, Jesus mentions this here, and Matthew writes something interesting in verse 15. He says, When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet. The abomination of desolation is what takes place halfway through the tribulation when the Antichrist enters into the reconstructed temple and he establishes himself, as 2 Thessalonians 2 says, he establishes himself, sets himself up as God to be worshipped as God. And that is going to take place, and that's going to be what he says here. Notice what he says at the end of this verse. Whoso readeth, let him understand. Matthew and the disciples, when they're asking this of Jesus, Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, understood that these things would take place not in the time of those who were hearing Jesus, but those who would read this 
prophecy. And that it means that it's true for us and it's important for us to read and to understand. And it's important for those who will experience these things. In fact, some of these warnings that Jesus gives only apply to believers who will be in that time. Not the church, but those who have trusted Christ through the preaching of 144,000 evangelists that will be commissioned during the tribulation. And so this time takes place and this is a time of great tribulation. I won't take the time this morning to read all of these, but what is going to happen during this tribulation period? As the seven years rolls on, and at the halfway point, the Antichrist sets himself up. He breaks covenant with Israel. Some believe that that will transpire in conjunction with an invasion by Russia of Israel that that is described in Ezekiel chapters 37 and 38. And he breaks that covenant. There are two witnesses that stand and proclaim God's message and proclaim God's word, and they are killed and they are raised. And all of this takes place and described in the book of Revelation. But Revelation from chapter 6 and interspersed throughout all the way over to chapter 18 describes what will take place as the judgment of God is poured out in this day of great wrath, in this day of the wrath of God. There are seven seals that are poured out. Christ opens the first seal in Revelation chapter 6, and we see the rider on the white horse, probably the beast, the Antichrist. The second seal introduces a great war. The third, famine. The fourth, uh, death. All of these that are described here in this early part of the beginning of sorrows. The fourth seal, there will be one-fourth of the people and creatures on this earth that are dead because of the wars. In the fifth seal, Those who believe in the preaching of the 144,000 witnesses will be martyred. The sixth seal, there is a great, mighty earthquake unlike any that has ever been since the beginning of the world. The seventh seal opens up the next segment of seal of punishments and judgments, and that is the seven trumpet judgments. The seven trumpets, an even worse period called the day of his wrath. And after all that has taken place in these first six judgments, the first six seals, the seventh seal opens up seven that are even more hard in judgment. The first first judgment destroys one-third of all the trees and the green grass burned up by hail and fire and blood cast on the earth. The second trumpet, a great mountain of sulfur, falls into the sea, destroying a third part of the sea and all the living creatures in it and a third part of the shipping vessels. The third trumpet causes a great star called Wormwood to fall into the fountains of waters, and a third of the rivers are turned bitter, resulting in the death of millions. The fourth trumpet results in one-third darkness, or one-third less light and greater darkness. In the fifth trumpet, demon-like creatures such as scorpions and locusts are released out of the bottomless pit. They don't have the power to kill man, but they have the power to bring pain and torture. Some believe that this is some kind of mechanical weapons of war, but the Bible says that they are not allowed to kill man. Weapons of warfare are certainly capable of killing human beings, but this will be some kind of torture and punishment that will come from the pit of hell. The sixth trumpet, 200 million horsemen um, are unleashed on the earth, and they will kill one-third of those who have taken the mark of the beast. The seventh trumpet will introduce the events from chapter 12 of Revelation through chapter 18. And the most severe set of judgments yet, the vile judgments or the bold judgments. This is the worst of the tribulation. This is the the day of God's wrath. The first vial brings great sores on those who reject Christ and great pain. Those who have accepted the mark of the beast and have worshipped the Antichrist. 
The second vial is poured out in Revelation chapter 16, and the sea turns to coagulated blood. The blood is of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea dies. The third vial, the rivers and other sources of water turn to blood. The fourth vial, the sun's heat, will intensify until ungodly men blaspheme the name of God. The fifth vial will cause darkness to cover the throne of the Antichrist and his entire kingdom. And the sores that are on his worshipers will continue, producing such agony that the Bible says men will gnaw their tongues in pain. The sixth vial sends lying demonic spirits out to the kings of the world to draw them together to a place that is called Armageddon, the battle of Armageddon. The seventh vial, the seventh bowl, results in a judgment of Almighty God that destroys the entire world system and judges all before His throne. That's the time that Jesus calls a great tribulation, a time of trouble, the time of Jacob's trouble. What are the reasons for this? Why why would God do this? Well, there's several reasons, but let me just give you quickly three reasons. One is to prepare Israel for the coming kingdom that will follow. In every mention in the Old Testament of the time of tribulation and the day of the Lord, there is a promise that Israel will be delivered. The people of Israel will turn after they have, that covenant is broken. They will turn, they will hear the preaching of 144,000 Jewish evangelists, and they will respond and they will hear. In fact, the Bible says there is a great multitude of those who believe during the tribulation who will come out of great tribulation. And it will prepare the nation of Israel. This is the final seven years, the seven weeks, or the one year, the seven, week, uh, seven years, one week of the 70 prophesied in Daniel of God's dealing with the people of Israel. And it will prepare them in His grace and mercy for the millennial kingdom. A second reason is, is because it is God's wrath expressed against sin. God unleashes His wrath on this earth. It says in the book of Revelation chapter 6 and verse 17, The great day of His wrath has come, and who will be able to stand? When the bowls are thrown into the earth, the vials are poured out on the earth, it says this is the cup of God's wrath. It is unmixed. It is complete. It is in its purity. God's wrath and God's justice has always been tempered and mixed with His mercy and His grace. But here it will be poured out in its purity. The greatest thing that this shows us, the revelation, the the time of tribulation, it will reveal the depth of depravity of man's heart. All the judgments that are poured out, man's wickedness is exposed. All the judgments that are poured out, and you would think people would cry out and say, wow, you know, this, is, this is terrible. In light of these judgments that are coming, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw myself on God's mercy. I'm going to seek out God's grace. And yet, what do they do? While they are gnawing their tongues in pain, they are blaspheming the very God they should be crying out to in mercy. Time and time again through Revelation, we read that instead of repenting, man does not repent. He curses God. That is the spirit of rebellion that has been a part of the fall of man and has been a part of the human race since the beginning of time. When we are called out on our sin, we don't often repent. We reject and we rebel even further against God. 
We say, God's not going to tell me what to do. I'm not wrong. This guilt is something you're trying to impose on me. We don't respond to God's justice and God's correction, and we, instead of relying on God's grace and God's mercy, millions will do this, but multiplied billions will not. And even when the most enormous, these giant hailstones fall in one of the judgments, the unregenerate still refuse to repent. Judgment is so devastating that it prepares the world for the coming of Christ and His final kingdom. That's the reasons for this. God is going to demonstrate once and for all how deep the depravity and the wickedness of mankind is. You see, we don't like to hear that. We like to think that we're actually pretty good. But all we have to do is look at this world, and every time before God pours out justice and judgment, man just gets worse and worse. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. What happened? It got so, so bad that God poured out judgment on the earth because it was so wicked. And it left unrestrained, man just gets more and more wicked. Wicked men will grow worse and worse, the Bible says. We see this in the book of Judges. It's the message of the book of Judges that left unrestrained. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. He didn't, he didn't do things that were considered wrong. He, in his mind, every person thought this is what's right. And what they were saying was what was right was sin against God. We can justify many things. We can look at our lives and we can see all sorts of sin. And we can justify it and we can do what we think is right. But we need to understand what the Apostle, the Apostle Paul said in, Revel, in Romans chapter 7. We need to understand the exceeding sinfulness of sin. And that is what this time will demonstrate, the depth of man's wickedness. So what does this reveal to us? What does this tell us about Jesus? What does this tell us about God? Understand that in all of God's interactions with humanity, He is revealing Himself to us. He is telling us something about Himself. He is showing us. He wants us to know that He is God. When He poured out His judgment in the book of Exodus on Egypt, why did He do that? He said, so that when I'm finished, Pharaoh will know that I am God. Egypt will know that I am God. We saw in our Sunday school lesson this morning, what was the point of that fire that fell? What was the point of Elijah's Challenge to the prophets of Baal so that Israel will know that Jehovah the Lord is God. And what did they say when the fire fell? The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. He wants us to know Him, and He wants us to know Him for who He is. And so He is revealing through this time of trouble. He is revealing through this judgment. He is revealing Himself to us and to the world. What does He reveal to us? He reveals, first of all, His sovereignty and His power. He reveals that He is the one that is in control. He is the one that is in charge. We look around our world, and the eyes of fear look, and we see, man, nobody knows what's going on. But the eyes of faith look around and see, God is, God is in control of what is going on. God knows God's plan. History is moving toward an inevitable end. The coming of Christ is a fixed point in time, and He is going to return. And these things are going to take place. And man may make choices that are sinful. God is not 
does not predetermine sin, but man makes his choices and nothing man does is going to contravene the purpose of God. He's the one that is in control. He's the one that's in charge. He is the one that has absolute authority in this world. And man thinks he's in charge. Satan thinks he's in charge and always has. All the way back to the crucifixion of Christ, the people thought they were controlling things. Judas thought he was manipulating things. Satan thought he was winning. But he was only accomplishing God's ultimate purpose of redemption. And so when we see these things taking place, we understand the sovereignty and the power of God. Prophecy also illustrates God's justice and God's wrath. The judgments that are poured out, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments, these two doctrines, God's justice and His wrath, are are largely ignored and even denied by many Christians today. We don't like those. We, We want to think of God as love. You know, the vast majority, when, when polls have been taken, the vast majority of those who believe in God or a God will always identify Him as a loving being. But the problem is, is that our culture's understanding of the love of God has completely purged away anything that makes our culture uncomfortable. And so we've shaped our own understanding, our own idea of what the love of God is. And it does not... It does not include justice. It does not include His wrath. The justice of God is the outflow of His righteousness. His wrath is the natural outflow of His holiness. And He is righteous and He is holy because He is loving. The love of God and the justice of God are not at odds with each other. They are inextricably linked with one another. In this passage, if you read through Revelation, there is justice for the martyrs that are killed. The blood, the voice of the martyrs crying from the altar, How long, O Lord, until our blood is avenged? They're not crying out because they're bloodthirsty or want personal vengeance. They are crying out because that is the final part of God's work. And they're saying, God, how long until you complete the work that you are doing? How long until you finish the plan that you are doing? There are those who view history and what's taking place as some kind of circle. And there's others who see it simply as a straight line. And there are some things that are circular, but we are moving from where God started it to where God finished it. And it will ultimately end with God's justice and God's wrath poured out. That is what is described in this passage. It is the wrath of God poured out. It is the day of the Lord's wrath. And let me just pause and say, this truth stands alone. God is under no obligation to mitigate either His justice or His wrath, nor do they require attempts on our part to justify them. God is who He is. God doesn't need a defense attorney. God is the judge. The response of the rebels in this passage stand in stark contrast with the worship of the redeemed. In Revelation chapter 7, and I want you to turn there, if you will, quickly this morning. There are those who have misconstrued God's justice and God's wrath, just as there are those who have misconstrued His love and His mercy. But I want you to see that this time of God's work also revealed to us not just His sovereignty and power, not just His justice and wrath, 
but his mercy and his grace. Against the backdrop of the justice that we deserve is the glorious grace that we do not deserve. You see, that's what grace is. Grace is receiving what we did not deserve. What does he tell us in this? Well, let me, before we get into this passage, let me remind you that in Revelation, he says there's going to be 144,000. These are young Jewish men from the 12 tribes of Israel that God will sovereignly bring together. What that's going to look like, we don't know all the details of, but they will proclaim throughout the world. Jesus said that the gospel of this kingdom will be preached throughout the world and then shall the end come. That's not talking about our time. That's talking about during the tribulation. The gospel is going to be preached around the world, just like there has never been universal war or global war, and there's never been completely global persecution. There's never been completely global famine. There will be in that time. There will also be global evangelization that takes place. And these witnesses will proclaim the gospel of the kingdom around the world before the end comes. There's the the two witnesses that stand up at the middle of this, the three and a half years, and they proclaim God's truth. But I want you to see in this chapter, right in the middle of all this judgment that's taking place, a reminder of God's grace and God's mercy. Look in verse, verse 9. After this I beheld and lo, a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hand. Do you see it there before? Who do they stand before? Before the throne and before the Lamb. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb. Both of these refer to two things that draw our attention back to Revelation chapter 4 and 5, when John gets a vision into the throne room of God where worship and glory is taking place. And in chapter 4, they worship He that sits upon the throne. And in chapter 5, who is worthy to open the book and to unleash the seven seals? And it is the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And they sing glory to Him who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb forever. What are they worshiping? They are worshiping the One who has sovereignty and power. He sits on the throne. And they are worshiping the One who holds the scroll. He takes the scroll that is the title deed to this earth, and it is filled with all the sins that have ever been committed. He is the One that has the sovereignty and power to do what? To unleash the wrath and justice of God. But also in this Lamb, in the One on the throne, the One who has created, and in the Lamb, the One who has redeemed, it is an ex- expression of God. It is an expression of the, gr- the greatest expression of the mercy and the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Because it was Jesus, the Lamb, who faced our, the wrath of God for our sins. He is the one that took our place in the justice of God. He is the one that was slain before the foundation of the world. It is the greatest expression of God's mercy and God's grace. It is the Lamb that is the one they worship. And they exalt. Look in verse 14. And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Verse 17. The Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God shall wipe away all the tears from their eyes. These are those who were saved 
in the middle of this great tribulation and in the middle of the greatest demonstration of God's justice and God's righteousness and God's holiness and God's wrath will be the great demonstration of His mercy and His grace to those who will receive it. There is always, every time God's justice is poured out, there's always a way of salvation. There's always the possibility of salvation and deliverance. God demonstrates His mercy and grace in the midst of justice through the Lamb. In Jesus is the perfect blending of justice and sovereign power and grace and mercy. It is interesting to me that in the midst of the greatest judgment is the greatest demonstration of mercy and grace. And it does two things for us. It ought to move us to worship. What are they doing in Revelation 4 and 5? They worship He who sits on the throne and the Lamb that was slain. And they give Him glory and they sing a new song. And there are those from every tribe and tongue and nation. That's us and we worship Him before the throne. But here those who come out of the great tribulation of every tribe and nation and tongue. And they will exalt and they worship. And what are they worshiping? They are worshiping God. It should move us to a heart of worship. This is how great God is. This is who God is. God always reveals Himself to move us to worship in Him and worship His glory. I look forward to the day when I will gather with saints of every nation and every time and every place on this earth and every time on this earth, all those who have trusted in the grace and mercy of God, and we will gather. What we do here this morning is merely a foreshadowing of the time when we will gather with the untold millions around the throne of God, and we will exalt Him, and we will worship Him. We will worship Him as the Creator who sits on the throne. We will worship Him as the Redeemer that is the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world, and we will lift our hearts and our voices and our souls in worship to God. And when we come together to do worship here, we are looking for forward to the time that we will do worship there. And I hope we do it a whole lot better there than we do here. (laughs) Think about that the next time you're expressing worship to God. But then let me close with this. This is the reason that we witness to the grace and mercy of God. Because whenever Christ comes back, there's some discussion over when that will take place and how it's going to take place and The fundamental truth is we believe Jesus Christ is coming back. He gave us his word on that. However that takes place and whatever that looks like, it is that fixed point in time. So as we move forward in time, the time is getting shorter and shorter. I don't know when this is, and I I don't know how far it is apart from where we are now. But we're closer now than when this service started. We're actually closer now than I... We were at the beginning of the sentence that I just gave. We're moving closer and closer. That means there's less and less time for us to proclaim the message of salvation that God has given to us, the message of the gospel. Whenever he's coming, it is our responsibility to live ready for his return and to share the gospel with those who need to hear it. Are we faithful in sharing the gospel? Are we faithful in telling others we are, we're headed toward this kind of judgment. This is what's coming. Are we warning? Are we sharing the message of the gospel? There's a great story of a pastor by the name of John Harper. John Harper was a British pastor 
about a century ago, a little over a century ago. He pastored in London, England. He was from Scotland, but he pastored in London, England. He preached various places around the world. He preached um, around that time, around 1917, I believe it was. He preached in Moody Church in Chicago. He preached there for about three months, and he returned to England. When he got back, they said, we want you to come back and, and do another series of meetings. And so he got his young six-year-old daughter. Um, his wife had passed several years before. But he got his, took his six-year-old daughter, and he took a cousin along to care for the daughter, and they got on a ship to come to America for him to preach at Moody Church. And the name of that ship was the Titanic. We all know the story of the Titanic. We know where it was headed. We know what was going to take place. After the ship hit the iceberg that night, Pastor Harper came to the, went out to check and see what was going on. He came back to the room and he says, we've got to get on deck. They're telling us to get into the lifeboats. And he got his young daughter and his cousin up on the deck and they said, put the women and the children into the lifeboats. They believed at that time, many of them, that um, they would just be in the lifeboats for a short time. The ship itself would not sink. Another ship would be alongside in just minutes, but of course we know all of that did not take place. Pastor Harper told his daughter as he put her into the boat, he said, I will see you again someday. He began to go up and down the deck of that ship, and as it became clear that the ship was going to go down, he began to speak to people about their souls and ask them if they were ready to meet the Lord. He gathered some of them together, according to one witness, he gathered some of them together and was seen praying with a number of people on the deck of the ship. When the time came and the ship began to go and sink down beneath the waves, he jumped into the icy water and he would swim from place to place as there were different ones holding on to pieces of wood and pieces of ships and pieces of boxes and whatever they could hold, out, hold on to. And he would speak to them about their soul. He died that night and sharing the gospel. Four years later, there was a young man that stood in a prayer meeting in a city in Canada and he said, I want to just share my testimony. He said, I'm the last convert of John Harper. He said, I was on the Titanic that night, and he said, I was holding on to a spar floating in the water. And he said, I saw him as he came close, and he said, he said to me, are you prepared to meet God? And he said, I've never trusted Christ as my Savior. And he asked him, he said, please do. He floated away. He said, sometime later, he floated nearby again. And he asked him again, he said, have you trusted Christ as your Savior? And this young man said, no, I have not. And he said, please, please do. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, he said, and you will be saved. He said, in just a few minutes, he sank beneath the waves. And he said, there with two miles of water beneath me in the icy North Atlantic, he said, I trusted Christ as my Savior. He said, I'm the last convert of John Harper. Let me tell you that our world is not headed toward an iceberg. Our world hit an iceberg at the beginning of time when the fall of man. And we've been headed toward ultimately being sinking beneath the waves. Our world is headed toward judgment. And our task as believers, a part of our task in glorifying God is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who will one day face His wrath and His justice. But the wonderful truth is, is God is a God of mercy and a God of grace. And he has extended in the person of Jesus Christ, in the message of the gospel, he has ex extended 
a way to miss the justice and the judgment of God because of a lamb who took our justice and who took the wrath of God and extends mercy and grace. Who do we need to share the gospel with? Who do we need to proclaim this message of mercy and grace? There may be someone here this morning. You've never experienced that. Maybe you've been going through life and you just think everything's okay. I'm going to be all right. I'm going to make it. I want you to know that apart from the mercy and grace of God, you will face the wages of sin is death. That's the consequence of our sins. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I want you to know this morning that you don't, you don't have to leave here today not knowing what your future holds. God unveils the future for us, so we will prepare for it. And you can prepare for that today. You can prepare for an eternity with God through Jesus Christ. Right where you are, you can simply say to God, God, I realize that I am a sinner, and there is nothing that I can do to save myself. But I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, and he rose from the dead, and now I want to confess him as my Lord and my Savior. You don't have to pray that word for word, but you can express that faith in your heart. And today you can trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. And one day you will stand together with those who have found the mercy and grace of God in the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And we will stand before that throne and we will worship He who sits on the throne and the Lamb. I hope that you'll do 